From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. We are back after our spring break. After taking some time to recharge our batteries, the Terra Informers are back for a summer of brand new episodes. As there is always a lot happening in environmental news, we are starting off with a news roundup episode. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwitsiwiskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papa's Chase Cree territory. The Papa's Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. In Canada, June is National Indigenous History Month, with National Indigenous Peoples Day happening on June 21st. Now, like we just said, the present and future of Indigenous people and communities should be emphasized just as much as our shared history, and not just in the month of June. But national months and days and celebrations can be a good reminder to take on some learning and support Indigenous people and organizations wherever you call home. If you are a Terra Informer listener, which you are if you're listening right now, you are likely a fan of learning about environment and climate justice related topics. So a recommendation to you from me this week is the Indigenous Climate Action Pod, a podcast presented by Indigenous Climate Action. They have a great catalog of episodes on a variety of different topics, from Indigenous climate activism to teachings about different plants and animals from across so-called Canada. We will have a link to their show in the notes for this episode. This week, we are catching you up on all of the environmental news headlines that you might have missed over the past month, while we were on our spring break. To start us off, here is a headline about a skills transition platform that was developed to help fossil fuel industry workers transition to the clean energy sector. The Climate Career Portal was launched in March of this year by two University of British Columbia graduates and Iron and Earth, an organization led by oil and gas workers whose mission is to empower fossil fuel and Indigenous employees to, quote, build and implement climate solutions, end quote, and to help ensure a prosperous transition to global carbon neutrality. If you listened to our archive episode that aired at the beginning of May, you would have heard an interview that Terra Informa alum Andrea Weeb did with Iron and Earth. University of British Columbia alumni Sally Lynn and Rohan Nuttall connected with Iron and Earth to work on furthering a skills transition platform concept that was introduced in one of Lynn's classes. 
After looking at data from polling of oil and gas sector workers, more than two-thirds of the surveyed workers stated that they wanted to switch into a career in the clean energy sector. But they needed help on determining how the skills they'd acquired in their current jobs would translate to the clean energy sector and help with accessing support and resources. In an article for Trek magazine, Nuttall comments that labor will play a key role in transitioning to a net zero economy in the coming decades. Skills that are currently required to work in the oil and gas sector can be used to construct other energy infrastructure like geothermal plants and wind turbines. The Climate Career Portal connects with many different partners, including the Canadian government, the petroleum industry, and renewable energy associations. The portal also provides access to training programs and courses to help with the transition to clean energy jobs. You can take a look at the portal at climatecareerportal.com. Now, here is Sarah Chitzaz covering British Columbia's plan to fertilize tens of thousands of hectares of temperate rainforest using urea. Through the Clean BC Fund, the BC government has committed to spend $15 million over the next three years to fertilize 25,000 hectares of BC's temperate rainforests with the chemical compound urea. Before we get into what this means, let's talk a bit about forest fertilization and what exactly urea does for plants. According to the government of BC, all plants, including conifer trees, rely on a range of nutrients to grow. One such nutrient is nitrogen. Forests in BC are known to have nutrient deficiencies and young forests have been seen to respond well to fertilization with nitrogen and other nutrients. As forests are fertilized, trees take up the nutrients through their roots and grow longer needles in their foliage. After a couple of years, fertilized trees produce more needles, which allows them to increase photosynthesis and grow their branches and stems quicker. In addition to benefiting trees, fertilizing forests can support the understory, including shrubs and other plants along the forest floor, in turn benefiting wildlife. Fertilization has been used in BC since 1978 but it seems like the main motivation for fertilizing forests has quite consistently been to increase the productivity of forests in terms of wood production. An added benefit has been that fertilized forests have increased carbon storage as they grow at a faster rate than they would without fertilization. So why is urea fertilization special? According to a 2014 resource from the government of Prince Edward Island, Urea is considered to be equivalent or superior to most other nitrogen sources for fertilization. There are two common types of nitrogen in most fertilizers, nitrate nitrogen and ammonium nitrogen. There's a lot of science behind which type of nitrogen is more helpful to plants, but basically, in ideal conditions, having a blend of nitrate nitrogen and ammonium nitrogen has its advantages for optimizing the fertilization of plants. That being said, it can be really challenging to find this perfect balance of both types of nitrogen in fertilizer blends. This is where urea comes in. 
Urea is a dry, granular source of nitrogen that is easy to manufacture and has high nitrogen content. Urea doesn't contain either of the two common types of nitrogen, but it has nitrogen in the form of urea nitrogen, which converts to ammonium nitrogen when placed in soil. This means urea is often considered to be equivalent to a source of ammonium nitrogen. Because urea is relatively stable to store and transport, it is considered cost-effective when compared to ammonium nitrogen, which happens to be classified as hazardous because it can be used as an explosive. Yikes. Urea generally seems to be considered safe to use as a fertilizer, but I would like to note that if it's used in too concentrated of an area, and if the conditions are particularly acidic and dry, Urea fertilizer can damage the roots of plants and potentially can release some ammonia gas into the atmosphere. So back to our headline, according to an article in the TAI from May 12, 2022, the BC government is hoping to fight climate change in part through fertilizing our forests with urea through the Clean BC Fund. Though through its forest carbon initiative, BC already fertilizes around 17,000 hectares each year. The intention is to add 1.3 million metric tons of carbon dioxide absorption by the forests by 2030. The Ministry of Forests has selected forests in the coastal and interior wet belt to be fertilized, based on a variety of factors including species composition and the age of the trees. According to the Ministry of Forests, most of the trees being fertilized through this plan will fall within the timber harvesting land base, meaning that forests that will eventually be harvested through forest tenures are included in the strategy. Forest tenures are agreements, licenses, or permits that are legally binding contracts, allowing the BC government to give private forest companies, communities, and individuals license to harvest forest resources on Crown land. Trees may be logged as early as 10 years after fertilization, which is the minimum time required to maximize the carbon dioxide captured. After this time, trees may be harvested based on standard forestry practices. The effects of fertilization are mostly seen on young trees, and so, although they play a vital role in carbon sequestration, old growth forests are not included in the urea fertilization strategy. The urea fertilization strategy through the Clean BC Fund has been criticized by some, such as Eddie Terrychen with Wildlight, as greenwashing. Because fertilized trees are expected to grow at a quicker rate than their unfertilized counterparts, the urea fertilization strategy will likely increase the rate at which timber can be harvested in BC. This means that BC will likely be increasing its royalties from wood harvesting while sequestering carbon, all just by distributing urea around our forests. Does this sound too good to be true? It seems like only time will tell whether increasing urea fertilization of forests will truly put a dent in our net carbon emissions. This has been Sarah Chitsas for Terra Informa. Thanks, Sarah. Next up, I've got a headline about a gardening trial that is truly out of this world.
Growing plants is cool. If you're like me and starting a garden for one of the first times in your life this year, watching seeds germinate and leaves stretch out is very exciting. But you know what makes growing plants extra cool is growing them in moon dirt. Researchers in Florida have done just that. They have sprouted seeds in 12 grams of soil from the moon that they received from NASA. According to an article at the CBC, this is the first time ever that this has been done. So they're kind of first time gardeners, just like me. Just kidding. During the Apollo 11 mission, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and other moonwalkers brought some soil samples back to Earth with them. The samples had been locked away until early this year, when NASA gave out the small sample. No one had any idea if any kind of plant life could sprout in the moon soil, but Robert Furl of the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences and his team wanted to give it a try to see if there was any potential to use it to grow food for future lunar explorers. Turns out, it worked. Kind of. The team planted Thale Cress, which is a small annual weed related to mustard and cabbage. All of the seeds sprouted, which is very cool. However, some of the properties of the lunar soil, like how coarse it is, caused the small plants to get stressed. So the weeds ended up growing much more slowly than their companions that were planted in simulation lunar soil. All of the moon soil grown plants ended up being quite stunted. Apparently, the longer that lunar soil is exposed to cosmic radiation and solar winds on the moon, the worse plants seem to grow in it. The soil samples that Apollo 11 brought back were from an area on the moon that had an older surface, so they were not very conducive to growing plants. One potential solution to improve how plants grow in lunar soil is to use soil from younger geologic spots or digging up soil. According to the CBC article, NASA has said that they are looking to put astronauts back on the moon in a few years. The hope for this research is that it can lead to a situation for future astronauts where they can use the moon-sized supply of lunar dirt to set up greenhouses and indoor planting to grow food for the moonwalkers, instead of having to use a hydroponic system that uses only water. Next, in energy news, here is Sonic Patel on the European Union's plan to make solar panels mandatory on all new buildings. Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel. On May 18th, the European Commission presented the Repower EU plan, an ambitious energy transition plan that meets two objectives reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and ending the dependence on fossil fuels from Russia. The latter motivation incented the plan, with European Union leaders asking the Commission to develop this plan in March, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Recent gas supply interruptions in Bulgaria and Poland demonstrate why ending this reliance is so critical. The plan aims to end reliance on Russian fossil fuels by 2027 and accelerate the European Green New Deal that is aiming for net zero by 2050. One of the critical pathways the plan aims to do this with is by requiring new public, commercial, 
and residential buildings include solar panels. By 2050, the plan envisions solar as being the largest energy source in the European Union, with half coming from rooftop installations. The plan also recommends doubling wind capacity and supporting renewable hydrogen production. Energy efficiency systems, or technologies that allow us to do more work with less power, are also being encouraged and supported. While the proposal comes with a hefty price tag, $210 billion in the next five years, these investments bring long-term economic benefits and enhance security by eliminating reliance on the Russian government and would save $84 billion a year from the costs of importing Russian fuel, let alone the climate benefits. The plan is a bold one, with many jurisdictions in and outside of the European Union having previously relied on incentives over regulation. If approved, a strong obligation in a large economic powerhouse could encourage solar mandates in other jurisdictions. This planned initiative can help address both the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine and the current and future climate crisis. Thank you. Thanks, Sonic. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community radio station located in Edmonton, Alberta. This week, we are rounding up the environmental news headlines that you may have missed over the past month. So far, we have covered plans in BC to fertilize part of their temperate rainforest with urea, plants being grown in soil from the moon, and the European Union's plan to make solar panels mandatory on all new buildings. Next up, here's some news about a big bank's exit from Canada's largest oil and gas lobby group. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers has lost Scotiabank as a member, which, according to an article by the Narwhal, leaves the lobby group without any large Canadian bank in its membership. In years past, Scotiabank and the lobby group worked closely. Scotiabank acted as the title sponsor of the association's annual energy symposium, which provided opportunities for oil and gas companies to connect with investors for new projects. The latest energy symposium sponsored by the bank took place recently this past April. Scotiabank has been a major financer of fossil fuels projects and has lobbied to delay climate transparency rules, which would require companies to report the carbon pollution caused by their products. According to the Narwhal article, Scotiabank has committed to cutting the emissions intensity from the burning of the oil and gas projects it finances by 15% by 2030, and the emissions intensity of oil and gas operations by 30% by 2030. However, Scotiabank has been criticized for not tackling, quote, absolute emissions, end quote, more broadly. The bank confirmed with the press early in May that it was exiting the oil and gas lobby group, but it did not provide a reason why. Now, to finish off our episode, let's talk about animals. Here is Jacinta Royangeza to cover the exciting return of river otters to the state of Michigan.
River otters have finally made their triumphant return to southeast Michigan. On the morning of April 25th, Eric St. Marie was on a walk with his partner near the Detroit River when he saw an animal pop its head out of the water. He noticed it was a little too big to be a muskrat or mink, but he also saw that it didn't have a flattened tail like a beaver would. As a PhD student at the University of Windsor's Department of Integrative Biology, St. Marie knew what he was seeing was unusual an otter in the Detroit River. But as he and his partner sprinted closer to the Ambassador Bridge and St. Marie pulled out his phone and pressed record, he never could have guessed how rare the sight was or that his video would be the first documented sighting of a river otter in the Detroit River in over a century. The sighting is a welcome surprise for area conservationists and one they're hoping to see more of in the future. River otters were very common throughout most of North America, including the Detroit River, which divides Detroit in southeast Michigan from Windsor in southwest Ontario. Like other semi-aquatic mammals, the river otter's presence in North America declined in the 1600s with the exploitative resource practices of European colonialists during the fur trade. Industrialization and urbanization eventually combined to deal what was thought to be the final blow to the river otter population in Michigan, Ontario, and Ohio. According to John Hartig, a visiting scholar at the University of Windsor's Great Lakes Institute for Environmental Research, there was so much pollution by the early 20th century that it was no longer possible for river otters to survive. Oil and other petroleum products would mat their fur and the otters would die because they couldn't thermoregulate. Since then, however, Ohio, Michigan, and Ontario have invested in pollution cleanup efforts and habitat restoration in their respective waterways. Today, river otter sightings happen annually in Ohio from the Lake Erie Peninsula all the way to Darby, near Columbus. Since 1987, more than $80 million has been invested in habitat restoration in Toronto, and now river otters can be found in the city's waterfront. For local ecologists and marine biologists, the return of river otters to the Detroit River is a sign that conservation efforts in Detroit and Windsor have substantially improved watershed conditions. There is, however, more work to be done. John Hartig notes that sediments from the Industrial Revolution still impact the riverbed, as does continued urban runoff. Climate change poses a looming threat to any habitat rehabilitation efforts going forward, but this lone river otter is proof of a step in the right direction. Thanks, Jacinta. For our final story, Sonic Patel leads us through a case of determining personhood for an elephant living in the Bronx Zoo in New York. Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel, discussing elephants, liberty, and what makes a person. New York's highest court is currently considering an interesting case. Is happy a 51-year-old living in the Bronx, legally a person? Well, there is one complication. Happy is an Asian elephant, one of six siblings brought to the United States in the 1970s. Eventually, Happy and her sibling Grumpy found their way to the Bronx Zoo in New York, where they were unfortunately mistreated. They were forced to give rides and perform tricks for the public. 
Grumpy was eventually euthanized, and Happy now lives alone, physically separated from Patty, the other elephant in the enclosure. Happy does get to see and hear Patty through the cages, but they do not share a physical space. And as the COVID-19 pandemic may have proven for some of us, these can be very different experiences. In 2018, the Non-Human Rights Project filed a petition with the New York Supreme Court to recognize Happy's legal personhood and right to bodily liberty. And as such, the project argues Happy cannot be unlawfully imprisoned and should be released to a sanctuary. The crux of the case is that elephants are very social and complex animals. Elephants can mourn their dead friends and family, and even more remarkably, will actually console other elephants who are feeling sad. Another point to their intelligence is that Happy has actually passed a mirror test, where she is capable of recognizing herself in a mirror. This is actually very rare among species. Some scientists consider the mirror test as integral to proving self-awareness and find links to empathy. Humans can usually pass the mirror test at around two years, which is also when they can pass tests that prove they have body awareness, which means they can realize that our bodies have a relationship to the world around us. Elephants also have body awareness, as seen in a test of Asian elephants. These animals were asked to give a stick to their trainers. However, the stick is tied to a mat that the elephants are standing on. The elephants quickly learned that they needed to get off the mat to give the stick over to their trainers. With all these indicators of social and emotional intelligence, should elephants be entitled to the same rights we afford each other? The zoo's attorneys offered this counterargument. Happy is currently not mistreated at the zoo, she does have connections with her caretakers and with Patty, her fellow elephant. And additionally, the zoo argues about the precedent of the case, as defining animals as persons could force other zoos across the country to release their animals. Precedent is definitely against the non-human rights project team, as they previously lost a case arguing chimpanzees deserved personhood status as well. This case is expected to resolve in the coming months, and will certainly have an impact on the future of elephants in captivity in the United States. Regardless of the outcome, with the incredible and terrifying rate at which humans are affecting and destroying environments around the planet, causing a mass extinction event, elephants, and indeed many other species, are not that different from us in the grand scheme of things and they certainly deserve our respect and compassion. This has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sonic. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca for past episodes, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.
pursue livelihoods, and gather together. Oh my god. I'm sorry, I know you're just gonna come down anyways. 